I wanna say this about the Lord's presence. We too often think that the Lord's presence is an exemption or a get out of jail free card, that God's presence will keep us from bad things happening. It will keep us from um, trouble and hard places. It's not an exemption. In fact, in Isaiah 43, 2, the Lord says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Notice that it says when, not if. You see, when is an eventuality. It's inevitable. It's going to happen at some time. So God's presence doesn't say, you'll come to the river, but you won't have to cross it. Or you'll come and it, it will never be deep. It will only be up to your ankles. Nor does it say that you'll never walk through fires or flames. It says when, when these things happen. But it is in these things that we realize that God is a help. Not a help from, but a help in. It's through these things that we give a witness and a testimony to others. We can say, you know what? The water was deep. The water was raging, but it did not overflow because God was with me. It is a directive through. God's presence gets us through the river. It gets us through the fire. You know, other people, they hit the river and they drown. Uh, this becomes their burial, that place where they died. The fire becomes the place that destroyed them, but not so with the presence of God. The river, the fire becomes just part of the path. God brings us through. Not only that, but there are lessons of maturity in the river, in the fire. We learn. We learn that God is good, that God is great. We learn how to ford the rivers. We learn how to survive the flames. Lessons that we would never learn if it wasn't for the rivers, if it wasn't for the fires. We learn that God has divine purposes even in the waters, the waters he uses to cleanse us, the fire he uses to refine us. And we learn that it's actually the river and the fire that move us into the fulfillment of God's promises. They are part and parcel of what God wants to do in us, for us, through us, by us, to get us into the place that he has for us. When Israel was making their way into the promised land, there was a sea to cross, a desert to travel through, and a raging river to be forded, as well as enemies to fight and vipers to avoid. So the circumstances of life are not about if, but when, because bad things happen to both good people and bad people. Bad things happen to believers and unbelievers. Bad things happen to the guilty and to the innocent. This is the consequence of living in this fallen and broken world of sin. But there's good news. And the good news is God's presence will go with us and bring purpose, success, and power to every hard place in life. When we... When Brian and I moved to England, 
and that would be like 25 years ago almost, I was unprepared for so many of the adjustments we had to make. Uh, Chief among those adjustments was the loneliness. I was so unprepared for the loneliness. I had left friends and family back in America, and I realized it takes time to make friends, and it takes time to nurture those friendships and to deepen those friendships. Not only that, but when I moved to England, I received two letters, both of them written in pencil. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but let me say this, they were leaded, uh, leaded letters, in that they were mean. Uh, One of them said, I didn't tell you this before, but I've had bitterness towards you because you didn't do this and you did do this. And I thought this girl liked me and I liked her. I thought everything was great. And all of a sudden to find out that there was this bitterness. I mean, it was shocking and it was painful. Same week, I got a letter from a woman who was one of my closest, dearest friends. And she told me that looking at my life, she felt like I had been mindful of the things of the flesh and not the things of the spirit. Being a Bible student, I knew that was exactly what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, when he said, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art not mindful of the things that be of God, but the things that are of men. This woman was in effect calling me Satan. I I was just, I was shocked. I cried. I remember just leaving the letter as it was just to go have a good cry. Um, Praise the Lord. Brian came across the letter. He brought it up to me. He said, this is not true, which I totally appreciated. But nevertheless, I had lost my spiritual support system. I, I didn't realize how much I had depended or rested on my mother or my father. If something was bad, if something was hard, they had only been a phone call away. And Um, I could even drive, get in the car, drive to their house and say, you know what? I'm having a hard day. I just need my mom. I just need my dad. But when we lived in England, the phone calls were too expensive and we were on a budget. Now, the outcome of all of this is for the first time in my life, I began to struggle with depression. The reports that I was receiving from California only made me go deeper into that depression. Now, the reports were good. In California, it seemed like the Shekinah glory was falling uh, from my own church in Vista. All the luncheons that they were putting on were being sold out. I mean, sold out. They said, oh, by first service, we had sold out. We had to call the restaurant and ask if they had more places so we could have more women come. Now, that had never been a problem for me why I was the pastor's wife of Vista. I remember my mom saying, oh, our retreats are so blessed. They're packed out and we've got waiting lists. And oh, the Lord was just so at the retreat. In the meantime, I was there in England, struggling emotionally, financially, and spiritually. Just saying, Lord, where are you? Then a Christmas card arrived late in January. How many people get a Christmas card in January? But this one had been delayed. And I remember it was just, you know, a Christmas card, it was signed. But there was a scripture reference on the envelope and it was from Matthew 28, 20. And I thought, that's not a Christmas scripture. Everyone knows that the Christmas scriptures are at the beginning of the gospels, not at the end of the gospels. And when I looked it up, you know, I know that scripture. I even know the reference, but it's, for some reason, my mind was blanking. You ever have that? Your your mind just blanks. You forget something that you know 
And that's what happened to me because I believe the Spirit of God wanted me to look up that scripture. And this is what it said. It said, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. That is just how I felt. Like I was in the ends of the earth. But God was saying to me, Cheryl, I don't care what you're feeling. I am with you. That same day, my devotions fell in Psalm 139. Now, here's the crazy thing about 139. I memorized the entire Psalm when I was 14 years old. I knew this Psalm by heart. But here I was in my devotional study, and it was speaking to me more than ever, especially verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And here's the part I really liked. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Remember, England is an island. And from California, it seems to be in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. It was then, as I realized that the Lord was with me, the problem was not with God, but with me, I needed to cultivate an awareness of the Lord's presence with me because you know what? The Lord was available and accessible. I just needed to cultivate that awareness. This is what we learned from Joseph's life. He is an example to us of how to cultivate the presence of God. I've, I've met any women like, how do I do that? How do I cultivate that? because it needs to be cultivated. From Joseph's life, we observe seven ways to cultivate the presence of God. I want to list these seven ways uh, before we go into the story of Joseph. Just so as you hear it, you'll be aware like, aha, aha, aha. I want you to have lots of aha moments as we go through this story. Now, let me tell you this about these seven points. They are not Choices, like I'll take number two and number four, but I want to leave off the lettuce and the hamburger bun. Can't do it. We need all seven. We need to use them congruently. Together, they're going to help us cultivate. Um, it's not even steps. It's not like I do step one, step two, step three, step four. They're not even steps. They are to be done together and repeated Recently, in a conversation with my son-in-law, I told him, Michael, I read this article that in order to ward off Alzheimer's, I need to lift weights. Can you give me a routine? He said, of course, yes, I will. Because Michael, my son-in-law, among other things, of being a professor and a pastor and a sometime model, he is also a weight trainer, a personal weight trainer. So he said, you know, mom, I want you to get a cowbell and I want you to, uh, you know, lift like this. In fact, I said to him, Michael, make me a video. And he did. He's so kind. And, you know, do 10 of this and 10 of that. And I want to tell you this. Any day now, I'm going to do it. 
just one day very soon when I'm finished eating all my cookies, I am going to start consistently lifting weights. But I say that because cultivating the presence of God, it takes repetition and it takes a daily consistent um, activity of all seven principles. One, he remembered the word God had given him. He remembered the dreams. We need to remember the promises of God and the word of God in every circumstance of our life. Secondly, he served God wherever he was and in whatever way he was asked to do. He considered whatever work he was asked to be a divine work for God. Third, he made God his highest authority. He was not under Potiphar, but under God. Fourth, he was dependent on God in everything. Joseph realized that his very survival relied and depended on God. Without God, he wouldn't make it. He needed God to survive the house of Potiphar. He sought to bring God glory to those around him. He sought to be a testimony. He recognized that wherever he was, whether in Potiphar's house, in the dungeon, or the house of Pharaoh, he represented God. He was an ambassador for God. For some of those, like Potiphar, Joseph was the only encounter they would ever have with God. He was as close as they would ever be to God. He was the only representation of God that they have had ever met or interacted with. Sixth, Joseph sought to learn, mature, and grow from the circumstances he was in. He didn't try to escape them. He said, Lord, what do you have for me in this place? Seventh, he entrusted his life, his welfare, and his future entirely to God. He yielded himself to God, and he yielded his faculties to God to be used as instruments for God's purposes. As we enter Genesis chapter 39, we find Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Even this placement in Potiphar's house, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. God brought Joseph success. Even in Potiphar's house, it was no accident that it was Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, who was over the prison of Pharaoh, who bought Joseph. And in Potiphar's house, this ungodly house, God was still available and accessible to Joseph. As Paul brings out in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not Potiphar's house, uh, not the job of being a servant. These cannot separate us from the love of God. So Joseph proved himself trustworthy in Potiphar's house. He was trusted and entrusted with everything that belonged to Potiphar. Joseph learned how to be um, honest. He learned how to honestly administrate over a household. Remember, back in the land of Canaan, 
Joseph was wearing the coat of many colors. He was the specified next patriarch of the clan of Israel. And Joseph wanted to be over that household, but he was inexperienced. And his inexperience brought the ire and jealousy of his brothers. Joseph did not know how to work with his brothers. He did not know how to be a team player. In fact, he even tattled on his brother rather than worked with them, trained them, or tried to motivate or influence them for good. Now Joseph in Potiphar's house is learning to navigate and administrate over others. We read then that Potiphar's wife begins to cast longing eyes on Joseph. Doesn't that word cast just speak to you? I mean, it's just like her, her little uh, rod and reel just whoa, go out with longing eyes, like, <laughs> and she keeps just fishing for Joseph with her eyes. She, um, I, I just want to say, beware those longing eyes. When we were young and in ministry, and we were both uh, much better looking, both Brian and I, there was a woman in our congregation who fell in love with Brian. I'd heard about this because she had confessed it to others, and they came to me, and I said, you know what? It's not my problem until she makes a move. Well, at one retreat, she felt led to come and confess her um, longing eyes towards Brian. And I told her something that I think is very important to know. I said to her, you're not in love with Brian. You're in love with Jesus. But you see Jesus in Brian. And Jesus uh, came to you through Brian. You were led to Jesus by Brian. And the enemy wants to come in and corrupt that affection that you feel for Brian as a pastor, as a godly man. In fact, I feel like the enemy wants to use this for evil in order to keep your husband from coming to Jesus. And I'm going to warn you about this because you are not in love with Brian. You are in love with Jesus. Well, she proceeded to tell me why I was wrong. And she actually challenged me. We'll see what Brian thinks about this. Crazy, huh? She felt led then to confess it to Brian. And Brian did just what Joseph did. He told her, I'm not interested. I don't want this. And she ended up leaving our church. Crazy enough, within two months of leaving our church, which I think was a wise thing to do, her husband came to Jesus. And their love for each other was rekindled as that man began to grow in the Lord. And she began to see Jesus in her own husband. The enemy's always there to corrupt, to trip up. But what happened was Potiphar's wife began to pursue Joseph. It was a daily thing. She was always trying to allure and seduce. But Joseph's resistance was strengthened because it had to be exercised every day. This would keep Joseph from being felled by the very things that removed his brother Reuben from the from being the patriarch of the tribe of Israel. You see, Reuben could not resist Bilhah. But here is Joseph, actively, daily pursued by this 
ungodly woman, and he resists and he continues to say no. I love Genesis 39.10, where it says he did not heed her. In other words, he wouldn't give her the time of day. He wouldn't pay attention to her. He didn't just say no. He absolutely did not heed her. In verse 9 of chapter 39, we read that Joseph said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph recognized that all sin is ultimately against God. Willful sin is an affront to God. You know, too often we try to make sin impersonal. I just did this for me. I just felt I needed this. And we don't recognize that when we sin, we are insulting God. We are saying, God, I want my will above your will. I want to meet my desires, even though they are in direct um, violation of what you say. I prefer this over your word and your will. Joseph had the right perspective of sin. It was ultimately against God. It was a great wickedness in the sight of God. And Joseph couldn't afford that. His survival depended on God. Oh, how we need to get to a place where we cannot afford sin because our daily survival depends on companionship of God. And we don't want to do anything that would violate that, anything that would bring a distance. One day alone in the house with Mrs. Potiphar, she cornered Joseph. She tried to force herself on Joseph, even grabbing Joseph's garment. Joseph fled, even leaving that garment behind. But as the saying goes, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Mrs. Potiphar, now scorned, made up an elaborate tale of being attacked by Joseph. You know what's interesting to me? It says that she called together the men in the house. This is one wicked wahini. She doesn't call together the female slaves. She doesn't even call her maid in. No, she calls the men of the house. She had influence with those men. Pot, then she tells Potiphar, and his anger becomes aroused. Perhaps the way she told it, but maybe because he felt betrayed by Joseph, who he had entrusted with everything. How difficult this must have been for Joseph. In doing what was right, he was slandered. It was not only the loss of his job, the loss of his responsibilities, the loss of his freedom. But I believe more than that, the loss of his reputation. You see, a reputation takes a long time to build. And losing your reputation hurts. In the ministry, personally, one of the hardest things I have had to face has been the slander and the loss of my reputation. It was so unexpected to be lied about by those I knew and who were in Christian leadership and knew better. That hurt. I remember crying about the loss of my reputation to the Lord, saying, Lord, I've lost my reputation. And the Lord spoke to me from Philippians chapter 2. 
And there it says that Jesus became of no reputation. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Cheryl, I became of no reputation in order to save you. Are you willing to become of no reputation to save others? Will you accept it as part of my purposes for your life? Honestly, submitting my reputation to the Lord was one of the hardest things I have ever had to do. I never realized how important it was to me. I never realized how much I valued it. You see, I'm not trying to brag, but I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life. I had a sip at communion because I didn't know it was wine in the cup. I thought it was grape juice. That was it, the only time. I've never said a cuss word in my life. I've never done drugs ever, never even been tempted to do drugs. I've never been unfaithful in my marriage. I never rebelled against my mother or father. I turned in every single school assignment on time, sometimes early. I sat in the front of the classroom with my hands folded and I looked adoringly at my teacher because I loved every teacher I've ever had, even Mrs. Tuttle, who was kind of mean. I was citizen of the month every single month in school. In fact, I used to have the reputation in public school of being a goody good, a goody good. That was my reputation. In fact, I had kids say, you're so good. You make me look bad. I don't want to sit with you. I don't want to associate with you. And now, in a second, by a lie, it was all wiped out. It didn't didn't do me any good that I had done, that I had abstained. No good at all before men. But God knew. God knows. I was accused of horrific things, and I gave that tarnished reputation 100% to Jesus Christ. And you know what the Lord said? Cheryl, I will give you a new name. God often takes away our old reputation, be it good or be it bad, to give us a new reputation, a reputation that will reach people. You see, if Joseph had held his reputation, he would never have gone into the dungeon and had the opportunity to minister to a baker and a butler. You know, when we hold on to our reputation, we will never be able to go into the dungeons of this life and reach those who are perishing and those who will perish unless someone speaks to them about the Lord. Joseph didn't blame God. He didn't rebel from God and he didn't defend himself. He went into the prison. He submitted himself to God in even a greater degree. For me personally, I found a new area in my life that I could give to God. Here was something I never thought I could give to God. Here was a new gift to the God who had given me everything, the air to breathe, my food to eat, a great husband, healthy children, wonderful grandchildren. What can I give to a God like that? I can give him my reputation. Joseph was put in prison under false allegations. Yet even in prison, 
We read in verse 21 of chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God began to rebuild Joseph's reputation. Actually, he began to build a new reputation for Joseph. The keeper of the prison committed everything into Joseph's hands, all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever the prisoners did, in that prison was under the authority of Joseph. So here in the prison, Joseph learns to work with officers because we're told this was where the officers of Pharaoh were placed. And again, in this place, Joseph proved trustworthy, but this took time. This took time. But in this present prison, Joseph had placement, training, teaching, direction, and God was working in the circumstances. While in this prison, God was perfecting his plans for Joseph. Not only is Joseph learning how to lead prisoners, because again, in um, verse 20 of chapter 39, we learned that this is where the prisoners were confined. This is also where he meets the butcher and the baker. And we're told in verse 4 that Joseph served them. Chapter 40, verse 4, Joseph served him. What a lesson. Joseph didn't take advantage of these men. He didn't lord over them. He didn't order them around. Joseph, though he was over the prisoners, he served them. And he served them in such a way so attentively that he even was aware of a change in their demeanor. Verse 7, we read that he looked at them and he said, why is your countenance fallen? How important it is for those in leadership to notice the change in the countenance of those who lead and seek to minister to them. In Proverbs 27, 23, it says, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. It is so important to know and to recognize um, that others are going through hard places. Joseph cared about these prisoners. They just weren't under his guard. He cared about them. He knew when something was wrong. He inquired. He spoke to them. He wanted to know, and he was willing to listen. The butler and the baker each had a dream, and they knew it was significant, but they didn't know its meaning. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Here, even in prison, Joseph is giving a witness to God. You know, sometimes we think, oh, nobody wants to hear from me. My circumstances are so bad. In fact, maybe it would be better if they think that I was an accursed unbeliever rather than a cursed believer. But in this place, you see, in the prisons of life is sometimes the most important place to give a witness for God. Joseph believes and knows God will give him the interpretation of the dream. Here are the two dreams. Here are two dreams. Interestingly enough, Joseph had had two dreams. Perhaps the Lord is using this time to remind Joseph 
the certainty of the dreams of the word he had spoken to Joseph while Joseph was still in Canaan. The butler's dream is of a vine with three branches, and each branch has a cluster of grapes. In his dream, the butler presses the grapes into the king's cup and places this cup with new wine before the pharaoh. End of dream. Joseph has the interpretation, but I want you to notice how the interpretation goes far beyond what was revealed in the dream. Also, this dream is prophetic. It portends the future. God has revealed the future and even the timing to this non-believer. These three branches represent three days. Within three days, the butler would be restored to his position. Joseph then asked the butler to remember him to Pharaoh. Here is the first time that Joseph proclaims his innocence. Verse 15 of chapter 40. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. Dungeon. Here is a clue to the condition of the prison, a dungeon. Joseph does not accuse anyone by name. He doesn't say, Potiphar threw me in here. It was so wrong. It's because of Mrs. Potiphar. Man, she is one wicked wahini. He doesn't put down others to defend the honor of his name. Wow, what a lesson. You see, before, remember, Joseph was a tattletale. He named names and he told on people. But here he has learned, don't tattle. Don't destroy the reputation of others to secure your own reputation. He only speaks of his innocence and not the guilt of others. No doubt, this interpretation gives the baker some hope. I mean, the butler's going to be restored. They both have threes in their dreams. So the baker tells his dream. He saw himself with three white baskets on the top of his head. White baskets. In the top baskets are all sorts of baked goods, but birds descend on the array of baked items and begin to eat them. Oh, the interpretation is not so good. After three days, the baker would be hung on a tree and the birds of the air would eat his body. Just as Joseph said, it happened. Three days later on Pharaoh's birthday, both the butler and the baker were pulled out of the prison. The butler was restored to his position and the baker was hung. However, in the excitement of being reinstated, the butler forgot all about Joseph. No doubt he wanted to forget all about that time in prison and the dungeon. We like to rush God's timetable. However, God knows the when. And this is also another lesson Joseph would learn. The importance of being in God's timetable and not trying to force his timetable on the Lord. Interestingly enough, in the third temptation of Jesus, the devil says, Throw yourself down from this temple and the angels of God will have to give witness to your divinity. He is saying to Jesus, force God's timetable. You don't have to do it um, in three years and according to the cross. You can do it now. 
You can have it all now. But Jesus refused this temptation, saying, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. He refused. God has a specific timetable to complete his work in. Let me say this. There is nothing worse than unripe fruit. Isn't that true? Nothing worse than an avocado that's so hard. Uh, I bought a papaya this week because it looks so good, but was never allowed to ripen properly. And when I cut it open, it was not sweet. There's something about a, a, a not sweet papaya that is not tasty. If God brings alleviation too soon, we will not learn the whole lesson. What began as a practice never becomes a discipline. Disciplines take time to develop. They have to be repeated day after day in order to be established in our routine and established in our heart and our mind to create a new neuropathway. We've all seen people make commitments when times are hard. But as soon as the circumstances is alleviated, they renege on their word and go right back to life as it was. We've seen people on diets. They forgo all the great things of life. But as soon as they reach their goal weight, they start eating everything that made them fat in the first place. I'm just saying my own experience, all right? After, we see that with Pharaoh um, in Moses' ordeal, that whenever the frogs were alleviated, whenever the flies were alleviated, whenever the gnats stopped biting, Pharaoh went right back to his refusal to let the people go. I have seen countless men, when their wives finally get fed up and say, I'm done, I can't take it anymore, they have a pseudo-repentance. They're at church whenever the doors are open. They're volunteering for whatever jobs. But as soon as that wife comes back or that husband realizes that that wife is never coming back, he leaves his commitment to the Lord. Um, I knew a woman who... uh, way back when uh, her husband wanted to make a commitment to the Lord and she discouraged him from doing it. She didn't want to give up her lifestyle. Her choice resulted in 15 years later, her husband leaving her for another woman. Oh my goodness, she was so distraught. She came, she sought out Brian, she sought out me. She was at church all the time, praying for her husband, wanting him back, talking to him. Uh, She was reading her Bible. And I prayed with her over the phone in person for this man to come to Jesus as he had wanted to do at one time. And I remember the Lord speaking to me and saying, Cheryl, there's a specific timetable in this. If I bring her husband to Jesus right now, she will discourage him and try to pull him back to their old lifestyle. This is going to take some time. And you tell her, this work is going to take time. And during this time, she needs to become rooted and grounded in me. That's exactly what I did. 
I said to her, God's not going to bring your husband back until you are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ so that you are no longer serving Jesus to get that man back, but you are serving Jesus because he is everything you need and all that you need, and you can't live life without him. That's exactly what happened. It was a process of about two to three years, and that man came back. And when that man came back, they both began to grow in Christ Jesus. And you know what? Today, they are both serving in ministry together. You see, God's timetable is perfect. And it is not only training us in the ways of the Lord, it is moving us into the purposes of God. Now, in Genesis 41, we read two full years later, again, two years is a long time for us. But God uses it to finish the work that he is doing in us to establish it. We read that Pharaoh has two dreams in one night. He wakes up after the first dream, goes to sleep, and has another dream, much like the first dream. And it troubles him. This is not just any dream. It is a dream that stays with him. It's a dream that troubles him. He senses that there is something divine about this dream that God or one of the gods is trying to speak to him. But when he calls on the magicians, those who supposedly know the gods of Egypt, they are unable to offer him the interpretation. There is now perplexity in the court of Pharaoh. None of the gods of Egypt can interpret the dream of Pharaoh. It is at this moment that the butler remembers what he forgot. And he relates to Pharaoh the circumstances, his own testimony of when he was in the dungeon, that he and the butler had had dreams. And there was one in the dungeon, Joseph, who interpreted their dreams. And exactly what Joseph said came to happen. By this time, the butler had become a trusted advisor to the king. Joseph is sent for. In an unexpected moment, suddenly Joseph's entire life is changed. He goes from the lowest rung of society to the highest office. He is taken out of the prison. He is bathed. He is shaved. So he even looks different. He smells different. He is given new clothes. He looks different. And he is taken before the Pharaoh. Everything, even his appearance, his smell, everything is changed. His placement, Pharaoh addresses Joseph. I have dreamed a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard that you can understand a dream to interpret it. Verse 15, Joseph responds by giving all the glory to God. Joseph has learned in whatever circumstances of life, whether as a slave in Potiphar's life or a prisoner in a dungeon or in the highest office in Egypt, he depends on God entirely. He publicly, in the court of Pharaoh, even before Pharaoh's officers, confesses his dependency on God. It is not in me. It is not in me. Or as Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. 
it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. It is in God. Pharaoh's dream is that he saw seven fat cows coming up out of the river and feeding on the banks, and they were fine looking and fat. Oh, why don't we have that kind of esteem in our generation? Why can't, um, why can't dimples in our thighs be thought of as a thing of beauty? I'm just saying. Then out of the river came seven skinny cows that were ugly and gaunt. And the ugly, noticed ugly, is because they were gaunt. Cows ate up the fat and fine cows. Dream number two, he saw seven, get this, plump. Remember, plump is a virtue. Stalks of grain coming out of the ground. Then seven thin, thin is not a virtue here, heads blighted by the east wind sprang up. And the blighted heads ate up the plump heads. Joseph has the interpretation from God. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 41, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. God is over the affairs of life. God is over the affairs of nature. God knows the end from the beginning. The God Joseph serves is above all of nature. The God Joseph serves is above all the gods of Egypt. He is over all of the affairs of life and over the circumstances. The God Joseph serves is the God of the whole world. The seven years represent seven years of plenty that will be followed by seven years of famine. The repetition shows the certainty of what God is going to do. It is of note that Joseph also had two dreams. And what he is saying to the Pharaoh is the repetition of a dream means it is certain. Joseph knew that the repetition of those two dreams that he had in Canaan were certain. Though it tarried, it was certain. And Joseph held on to those dreams. His dream that his sheave had stood erect in the midst of his brother's sheaves and his brother's sheaves had bound down to his, Genesis 37, 7. The second dream where the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to Joseph, Genesis 37, 9. Joseph had not lost the sense of God speaking through dreams. He had not lost faith in God's word. The repetition of these dreams signified the validity. Joseph then advised the Pharaoh. And when he advised the Pharaoh, notice he is bold. He is reasoned. He is diplomatic. He is respectful. He is wise. He knows how to administrate. And he has a plan. His plan is that Pharaoh should appoint someone during these good years to collect a revenue of one-fifth from all the people and store it up. He needed, Pharaoh needed someone who knew that bad times were inevitable and wouldn't live in denial. He needed someone like Joseph who knew how sudden change could happen and knew how to prepare. He needed someone who knew how to redeem the time and knew the importance of redeeming the time. This is an important lesson. In fact, Paul reiterates this lesson. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. How do the wise walk? 
redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Pharaoh recognized the wisdom of Joseph. Verse 37, so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Pharaoh was not hiring Joseph as much as he was hiring God. And Joseph was God's representative. Pharaoh wanted the wisdom of God, and he knew and recognized it was in Joseph. Suddenly, in a moment, all of Joseph's life was changed. He is made ruler over Pharaoh's house, the government of Egypt. He is made ruler over Pharaoh's people. They will be ruled according to Joseph's word. No one but Pharaoh will be greater in all of Egypt than Joseph. Joseph is given the signet ring right off of the finger of Pharaoh. He is clothed in fine linen. A gold chain is put around his neck, signifying his uh, esteem, the respect due him in the kingdom of Egypt. He is given a chariot to ride in behind Pharaoh, the greatest honor that all of the public, all of the people of Egypt would see. He is given recognition and respect. All the people, when they see Joseph's chariot, must bow the knee whenever they see him. Joseph is given power. I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one may lift his hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. Verse 44, Joseph is given a new name, Zaphnath Pa'aniah which means God speaks, God lives, a revealer of dreams. Notice the new reputation. Notice the new reputation in the new dream. Everyone who, in the new name, everyone who looks at Joseph, who says his name will realize that God speaks through Joseph. God lives in Joseph and God reveals dreams to Joseph. God fulfills dreams. Joseph is given a wife. He did not get a wife for himself, but he received one and he accepted the one he has given, Asnath. She's a daughter of a priest. Joseph is now 30 years old. His ordeal and his training has been 13 years. But now after this 13 years, he is ready for the power, the position, and the prestige. He can handle the power. He can handle the fame. He can handle the possessions. Joseph administrates faithfully. He collects the one-fifth during the times of prosperity. He stores it up in the right places and in the right way. He operates in and by the wisdom of God. He is just as dependent on God now as second in command as he was when he was in Potiphar's house, as he was in the dungeon just as dependent on God. Joseph's testimony is seen in his sons. He gives his sons Hebrew names, even though he is in Egypt and over Egypt. Their names are testimonies to God's triumph. Verse 51, his oldest son is named Manasseh. God has made me forget all my toil and 
all my father's house. God has more than compensated for all that Joseph went through in his father's house. This is the declaration that everyone who trusts in Jesus will make when they are translated into glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul states for the, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When we get to heaven and we see that weight of glory, when we see that reward, we won't remember one hardship we went through. We will not remember one sorrow. We will be so overtaken with the goodness of the Lord. But the second name of the second son, Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has used all the hardship for fruit. God has taught and trained me in these hard things. This is Joseph's declaration. God has prospered me through and in adversity, not in spite, but through using hardship and adversity. God's presence is not an exemption from hardship. God uses hardship. God uses affliction and all the circumstances of our life for our good if we will only cultivate his presence. God did not exempt himself from pain, suffering, rejection, captivity, beatings, or crucifixion. In fact, we're told in Philippians chapter two that Jesus suffered the loss of his reputation, that he became as nothing. He was obedient to God in all the circumstances of his life, even unto death. But because of that, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. Even as the Egyptians bowed the knee to Joseph, who was a Hebrew and who had once been a slave in Potiphar's house and then in the dungeon, so now Jesus, who had been a servant to all of mankind, placed in the dungeon by the high priest crucified as a criminal. Now every man and woman on earth and in heaven above will bow the knee someday and say, Jesus is curious. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the greatest authority of all. And when we do, it will bring God the highest glory. It is by cultivating the presence of the one who lives and was dead, but ever lives, Jesus, that we are able to prosper in, through, and even because of adversity. In the times of adversity that we presently find ourselves in, we can redeem it. And we can redeem it by cultivating the presence of the Lord. And how do we do that? One, remember the word that God has given you. My dad used to say, never forget in the darkness what God spoke to you in the light. Be in the word of God. Write down God's promises to you. Secondly, seek to serve the Lord in all you do. Colossians 3.17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, going back 
to point number one, I just remembered that Colossians 3.16 tells us to cultivate the word of God. Um, Do it by singing and talking to each other about it. And then again, seek to serve the Lord in all we do. Three, make God the absolute authority over your life. Realize you are not under the tyranny of COVID or of the governor or of the president of the United States. You are under the governing authority of Jesus who has put these men in the position they are in. Yes, Jesus put these men in their position for his purposes, for his timing. Jesus is the great authority in our lives. He is the first word and he is the last word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. Fourthly, depend on God in everything. Look to him for your survival, for all you need emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Years ago, I knew a woman who was a pastor's wife. She lost everything because of her husband. Her husband fell into sin, and this woman lost her reputation. She lost her house. She lost um, all of her possessions. They were all taken away from her, all her furniture, her car. Uh, She lost her income. She uh, lost her sense of purpose. She lost everything. And I remember talking to her um, about that time. And I said, were you ever angry with God? And she said, never. She said, Cheryl, my whole life depended on God. Without God, I really had nothing. I could do nothing. I needed God more than ever. He had to be my furniture. He had to be my transportation. God had not let me down. A man had let me down, but God would lift me up. He would sustain me. And that's exactly what happened in her life. In John chapter six, Peter said to Jesus, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Are you so dependent on Jesus that you could, you could let go of everything else in life, but not Jesus? Sometimes I look at the homeless people and I say, you know what? Could I make it? And I think as long as I have Jesus, I can do anything. As Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ. That's the secret. All things through Christ. Paul said, I have learned to abound and to abase, but I can do it as long as I have Jesus. Fifthly, seek to bring God glory in all you say and do. Seek to make the name of Jesus great. Whether you're in the dungeon or in Potiphar's house captivity, or you're in the palace, you represent God to others. Sixth, learn all the lessons that God has for you in the hard places. What lesson does God have for me now? Joseph knew how to prepare for the lean years because he had learned to listen to and obey God during the lean years of his captivity. God has lessons. Um, My dad um, was famous for pausing in a walk uh, just to look and draw people's attention to a blade of grass or to a bird in a tree. And one time he said to me, you know something, Cheryl? I'm not as strong as everybody thinks. But when I need to rest, I stop and I just take inventory of my surroundings. 
And I try to learn one lesson in that place. I'm tired and I look around me and I look for something that God is seeking to show me. And sometimes it was a bird, a beautiful bird. Other times it was a blade of grass and the green hues in the blade of grass. In this place that you are, stop, pause, and seek to learn and seek to see what God is showing you. Seek to learn what God is teaching you. Seek to hear what God is speaking to you because God is always speaking. God is always teaching. God is always revealing. Finally, daily entrust your life to God. Practice Romans 12, 1 to present yourself as a living sacrifice. God, use me right here, right now for your purposes. I belong to you. Lord, use my fingers. Use my hands. Maybe not to make gross lemon cookies, but for greater purposes. Lord, what do you have for me? Who can I pray for? Who can I send a text to? Who can I call and talk to? What can I pick up for someone at the market? Lord, use me right now as your child. In fact, let's take a moment right now just to give God a fresh and anew our lives in the place where we find ourselves. Lord, we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Lord, which you find holy, which you find acceptable, which is only the logical, practical, and best thing we can practically do for our lives and in this place. Lord, will you teach us everything that you have? Will you open our eyes not to see chariots of fire on the mountainside, but to see our Savior the crucified and resurrected one right here in our midst, speaking to us, revealing things to us, ministering to us, surrounding us. Lord, may we cultivate your presence in every way, in everything, and in every place. In Jesus' name, amen.